Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Publisher, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. I know you've all been waiting so long and you've been so patient waiting for me to launch my first episode of my podcast, Shouse in the House. With that being said, I imagine down the road one day somebody is going to say, what did you do to prevent the deterioration of the Republic? And I am afraid that up to this point, my only contribution would be a few well-placed tweets, and the occasional conversation with probably the most unsuspecting individual. I decided that I didn't want that to be my legacy. That isn't the mom that I want my son and daughter to admire and take after. I want to be strong and help people reacquaint themselves with the foundational principles our country was built upon. I want them to realize how lucky they are and how beautiful the Constitution and Bill of Rights are. I want them to feel comfortable with not only having a different opinion, but expressing it, validating it with facts instead of feelings, and being okay with agreeing to disagree. Speaking of feelings, I'll share a story with you guys about my dad, who probably would have featured prevalently in this podcast. we It's probably something that we would have done together. Uh, I'll tell you guys, like I said, a story about when I was younger. I was in a school play and I had a part and I looked out in the crowd and found my dad and he was making all these ridiculous faces at me and I was absolutely mortified. No one could really see him because he was towards the back of the audience, but you know, at the moment, rational thought was slightly lacking. After the play, my father came to hug me and tell me how proud he was, and instead of appreciating that moment, I pushed him away crying and whining about how embarrassed I was and that he had hurt my feelings. And my father bent down and he said, he probably asked me one of the most profound questions that I've ever been asked, and he said, feelings? What are feelings? How did I hurt them? And I knew at that moment, this is one of those trick rhetorical questions where there was a lesson at the end of my response, but I still responded back and I said, because you embarrassed me. It was at that moment that my dad taught me a life lesson that has carried me through some of the most difficult moments in my life. And he said, feelings are a figment of your imagination. There's no such thing as feelings. There are words and actions and your perception and subsequent reaction to those two things. The only person who can impact your reaction to those things is you. I can't make you be sad. I can't make you be happy. I can't hurt your feelings without your permission. And even to this day, I still have to take myself back to that moment with my dad because Sometimes I forget to control how I feel about something someone does or says to to me. And unfortunately, as a society, we've really shifted to this groupthink mob mentality. And not only do we get personally offended at completely innocuous things like the OK sign. We used to play this game, and I don't even remember what it was called, but you'd, you'd do the OK sign like down on your leg, or boys would do it in inappropriate places, and 
it's like the major look, you know, it, it that's the circle game or something I think is what it's called. But now apparently it means white power and it's not permitted. And some people are even losing their jobs because of it. So <laughs> I feel like we've just really slowly allowed the erosion of our personal backbones by carrying the weight of political correctness. And I believe that it's time we, the people, started over and reaffirmed the rights that we all share. Go back to square one, revisit the themes and ideas of the founding fathers that they used to start this country. And my goals with this podcast are very simple. Entertain, educate, and ask and answer questions. It's not always going to be about politics, but that will certainly be a driving factor in many of the episodes, and I'm just going to get that out of the way in advance. I really hope, you know, it's a call to arms for people to remember what makes this country so great. The country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. So, with that being said, I'm going to play a video for you guys, and that will launch us into our first episode. I'm gonna play that video for you guys real fast and I think you will find it very enlightening. We're here today to announce three separate cases highlighting the ongoing threat posed by Chinese economic espionage and research theft in the United States. First, the arrest today of a Harvard University professor for lying about his participation in a Chinese foreign recruitment program. Second, this morning we have unsealed a separate indictment of a Chinese national working as a scientific researcher at Boston University who failed to mention on her visa application that she is also a lieutenant with the People's Liberation Army. Finally, this office has indicted another Chinese national for trying to smuggle vials of biological material out of the United States to China and lying about it to federal investigators. That defendant, whose entry to the United States had been sponsored by Harvard University, was a cancer researcher at a lab at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. This is not an accident or a coincidence. This is a small sample of China's ongoing campaign to siphon off American technology and know-how for Chinese gain. So... If you're anything like me, after having heard that clip, you have questions. At least I hope that you're something like me, otherwise you won't really enjoy this podcast very much. But with that being said, I reached out to Mr. Lelling's office because I had some questions specifically regarding uh, the individuals who were arrested and, and you know, some of the details of, of their arrest and what crimes they committed. So I asked two specific questions. Number one... Since Zhang's visa was also sponsored by Harvard, has there been any connection found between Zhang and the Professor Charles Lieber? That was question number one. Question number two was, in the vials that Zhang was attempting to smuggle out of the country, it's widely reported that the vials contain, quote, cancer research. I am curious if those vials all contain the same biological material or if some of it was for cancer research and other vials contained other material that has not yet been disclosed. Any help answering the questions would be greatly appreciated, and I look forward to hearing back from you. Uh, The response that I received from his office was that they couldn't comment or interview because it is considered an ongoing case, uh, but they did attach the charging documents that specifically the indictment charging Zhang and the criminal complaint charging Lieber. Let's get into some details about the particular individuals. 
So Zhao Zhang is a Chinese national who entered the United States through the J-1 non-immigrant visa program on August 8th of 2018. His visa application was sponsored by Harvard University. While in the United States, Zhang received a stipend of approximately $2,000 per month from the Chinese Scholarship Council. From about August of 2018 and continuing until about December of 2019, Zhang conducted research in the area of biomedical sciences, specifically in cancer pathology, at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, which is a part of Harvard, apparently. The Beth Israel Center is a teaching hospital and medical research facility of Harvard Medical School located in Boston, and... They have numerous laboratories, including the Wenyi Y Laboratory, which is the the focus of that laboratory is the study of cancer cells. On December 9th of 2019, Zhang went to Boston Logan International Airport and attempted to leave the United States bound for Beijing, China on Hainan Airlines, Flight 482, with vials of biological materials and research that he has stolen from Wise Library. Um, Customs and Border Protection checked his bags, examined them. They discovered 21 vials wrapped in plastic and hidden in a sock. The vials were visually inspected, appeared to contain liquid, and the officers suspected the contents were biological in nature, nature. So apparently they were tested and it confirmed that they did contain DNA and therefore constituted biological specimens. He was required, I guess, to package them differently. They were supposed to be in, like, a heat-sealed bag and a label on them with scientific research specimens. Uh, They weren't packaged that way, obviously. So I guess they asked him multiple times if he was traveling with any biological material, and he replied no multiple times. Well, after he was taken to, like, a secondary area, and I guess he was shown the material... He admitted that he stole biological research from Beth Israel. And then on about December 10th, he returned to Logan Airport to board a flight destined for PRC. And when he arrived at the airport, he was met by special agents of the FBI. He explained that he worked at a laboratory at Beth Israel conducting research related to cancer, admitted that he stole the biological specimens and was planning to take them to China so he could conduct further research on the specimens in his own laboratory and then publish the results under his own name. So as far as the counts of what he's actually being charged with, the first count is smuggling goods from the United States. So the material, obviously. And he did knowingly export and send an attempt to export and send from the United States biological specimens contrary to laws and regulations of the United States. Count two is false statements. So essentially saying that he he didn't can have that material. He wasn't trying to steal it. So those are the only two charges that he has right now. It I looks to me like apparently he, I, based on some of the, you know, rumor type information that I found apparently he was working on this research with another person but he wanted to publish the the findings in his own name and so there's that now whether or not this particip- this guy is participating in the thousand talents plan which we'll get to later in this episode uh, that's to be determined I guess at a later date so next up we have Charles Lieber Oh boy, do I have a lot to share with you about this gentleman. So, there is an FBI agent who provided a sworn affidavit. His name is Robert Plum. And he uh, he goes through like his whole background and, and why he's qualified to present this information. But 
He states, I have probable cause to believe and do in fact believe that Lieber made materially false, fictitious, and fraudulent statements regarding his participation in China's Thousand Talents Plan to the U.S. Department of Defense on or about April 24th of 2018. I also have probable cause and do believe that on or about January 10th, Lieber made and caused to be made a series of materially false, fictitious, fraudulent statements to the National Institute of Health about his involvement in the Thousand Talents Plan and his affiliation with the Wuhan University of Technology in China. So, now you've made your claim. So, let's see supporting evidence. So, Lieber was, let's talk about him as a person real quick. He was a strategic scientist at the Wuhan University of Technology and a contractual participant in China's Thousand Talents Plan for significant periods between at least 2012 and 2017, so for five years. The terms of Lieber's Thousand Talents contract called for Lieber to be paid up to $50,000 per month in salary and approximately $150,000 per year for, quote, living and personal expenses by Wuhan University of Technology. He was also awarded more than $1.5 million by WUT and the Chinese government to establish a research lab and conduct research at WUT. Now, let's give some background on him. Lieber is a full-time faculty member and the chair of the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's the chair of the chemistry department. His primary area of expertise and research is nanoscience. So, at all times relevant to this complaint, he served as the principal investigator of the Lieber Research Group at Harvard University. So, he has a whole research group named after himself. So, according to the Lieber Research Group's website, it identifies its principal sponsors as the National Institute of Health and the Department of Defense, including the Office of Naval Research, or ONR, and the Air Force Office of Scientific Research, AFOSR. Based on records that were maintained by the National Institute of Health, the Department of Defense, and Harvard, it is known that Lieber Research Group alone, just Lieber Research Group, received more than $15 million in grant funding from NIH and DOD since 2008. So in the last 10 years, In addition to the stuff that he was receiving from China, he was also receiving more than $15 million in U.S. taxpayer grant funding. So, in order to receive National Institute of Health funding, research institutions must submit a detailed application describing, among other things, the purpose and scope of the proposed research that they're going to be doing, the amount of funding that they're requesting, and how that funding is going to be used. During that application process, and usually afterward, like after you receive the money, the institution, in this case meaning Harvard, must also disclose to NIH all foreign collaboration and foreign sources of research research support, including, but not limited to, grants, cooperative agreements, contracts, and or institutional awards. Additionally, National Institute of Health requires research institutions to identify and disclose significant, meaning significant, meaning more than $5,000 of financial conflicts of interest by investigators. That is, the person or persons responsible for the design, conducting, and publishing of the research performed. 
including those related to funds received from a foreign institution of higher education or the government of another country. So it very clearly, you should be disclosing if you're receiving money from another country in addition to receiving taxpayer funds for research. Now, let's talk about uh, the Wuhan University of Technology is a university located in Wuhan, China. Originally, when this report came out, a lot of people conflated a lot of information. So a lot of people conflated Zhaozong Zhang smuggling the vials of biological material out of the country with Charles Lieber as smuggling the uh, the COVID-19 from Wuhan. Like there was a lot of misinformation that came out around this same time conflating all of these situations. Wuhan University of Technology is considered a top-tier Chinese university recognized for its studies in science and technology. So, moving forward, the Thousand Talents Plan is designed to lure both Chinese overseas talent and foreign experts to bring their knowledge and experience to China. The so-called World Recruitment Plan of Renowned Experts in China is a part of the Thousand Talents Plan. So in, in a lot of this documentation, they refer to it as the World Recruitment Plan, but it's still a Thousand Talents program in China. And according to the records maintained by Harvard, Lieber traveled to WUT mid-November of 2011 in order to participate in a nanoenergy materials forum being hosted by WUT. Just days before Lieber's trip, a professor at WUT emailed Lieber a contract for strategic scientist's appointment. And he informed Lieber that he'd been recommended for the recruitment program of global experts. And this FBI investigator testifies that he knows that to be a part of China's Thousand Talents Plan. In subsequent communications on or about November 11th, both Lieber and the professor acknowledged that Lieber would sign the strategic agreement at WUT on November 15th. According to the agreement, which was written in Chinese and English, Lieber was appointed as a strategic scientist at WUT for five years, from about November of 2011 until about November of 2016. And his objectives and tasks under the agreement were as follows. And this handwriting is really small, so forgive me. Um, Number one, Make strategic visionary and creative research proposals to guide the advancement of disciplines or scientific research institutes to become the first class disciplines of scientific research institutes in China or the world, especially in frontier areas. Number two, supervise young teachers or receive them as visiting scholars, guiding or co-guiding postgraduate students, including postdoctoral students, leading them to the international forefront of related fields, jointly publishing academic papers in top international journals in the name of WUT and WUT faculty or students as the first author, or publishing high-level academic monographs and guiding young teachers to win national awards or influential international academic awards. Number three, Build up a discipline innovative team introducing and cultivating high-level talents to be as qualified as those of China's Thousand Young Talents Plan, Distinguished Professors of Chengjiang Scholars, and Winners of National Science Fund for Distinguished Young Scholars. 
conduct national important key projects or international cooperation projects that meet China's national strategic development requirements or stand at the forefront of international science and technology research field. Number five, carry out international exchanges and cooperation and host or jointly host prominent international academic conferences in the name of WUT. Now, according to the contract, WUT agreed to pay Lieber 50,000 US dollars per month prorated according to Lieber's actual work time at WUT. They also agreed to pay Lieber with round trip business class airfare to and from WUT. Finally, the agreement alluded to Lieber's future involvement with China's Thousand Talents plan and allowed for seemingly greater monthly compensation in the future. So there's a little caveat that was in this contract that said, once you gain a Chinese government-sponsored position through successful application for various Chinese talent-related projects, Party A shall adjust its payment terms to ensure that Party B enjoys more benefits on the principle of taking higher pay, but the same benefit terms will not be paid twice. So essentially, what we've agreed to before will just be increased. You won't get both payments. So he returned to Massachusetts from WUT on November 16th. Two days later, Lieber wrote to the professor, I very much appreciate the effort that you put into making my visit a good one. I also agree that it would be productive and hope that we can push forward as per discussions to build up the joint laboratory to a truly world-level facility. Now, about a month later, around December of 2011, the WUT professor emailed portions of a proposed website for the, quote, WUT slash Harvard Joint Nano Key Laboratory, which according to the website was established in 2009. The website prominently featured Lieber's name, photograph, and biographical material, and it identified him as the laboratory director. About April 3rd of 2012, so we're talking about five months later, the WUT professor wrote an email to Lieber informing him that he had been selected to participate in China's Thousand Talents Plan. At that time, Lieber's selection entailed awards by WUT and the Chinese government of approximately 158,000 U.S. dollars in personal benefits and nearly 800,000 U.S. dollars in research funding. Specifically, the WUT professor wrote, I am very happy to let you know in the World Recruitment Plan of Renowned Experts in China, also called 1000 Talent Plan of Foreign Experts, you've been approved and awarded as invited, blah, 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 blah. So essentially, and it's all in um, yen is essentially, I think, what they're, they're doing this in. But then three months later, June of 2012, the professor shared with Lieber a contract titled Employment Contract of 1000 Talent High-Level Foreign Expert. I'm going to talk to you guys about how this whole 1000 Talents plan works uh, a little bit later, like what the structure is as far as applying and how you get accepted. But the 1000 Talents agreement was effective for three years from the date of signature. Among other things, the agreement obligated Lieber to conduct scientific research to publish high-level articles in the renowned and important international academic journals in the name of Wuhan University of Technology, to assemble a research team, we've talked about all of this, 
Um, guide distinguished young scholars, three to four doctoral students. This it gets more specifically. There's a line in the contract that says both sides in line with the principles of legality, fairness, equality, and mutual agreement to ensure the implementation of 1000 talent high level foreign expert plan and to guarantee legal rights and obligations of both sides on the basis of Chinese laws and rules concerned agree to sign this contract. And that line alone, you're you're literally playing with rules from a country that you don't even belong to. With that being said, the agreement also required Lever to work at or for WUT not less than nine months a year. How many months are in a year? Twelve. So nine of those he was working for WUT. In exchange for his work for and on behalf of WUT, they agreed to pay Lieber fifty thousand U.S. dollars per month and living expenses of up to one million Chinese yen, which in two thousand and twelve approximates at one hundred fifty-eight thousand U.S. dollars, and that was to be paid over the three-year term of the contract. The contract also allocated eleven million yen, or roughly one point seven four million U.S. dollars, for the joint Harvard WUT Nano Key Lab and related research. So. Moving forward, there's another email that is written to Lieber. The WUT professor tells him that the president has signed the Thousand Plan Agreement and that the executed copies of the agreement had been snail mailed to Lieber in Massachusetts for his signature. In an email dated on or about July of 20, 2012, July 21st, 2012, the WUT professor informs Lieber that they had received the copies of the agreement signed by him. And after signing that agreement, Lieber returned to WUT in November of 2012. His travel expenses to and from were paid by WUT. Now, uh, before he left on October of 2012, a WUT employee, not the professor that he originally worked with, but a different employee, wrote, Before your visit... I would like to talk about one detail in the implementation of the contract. According to the article concerning the payment and living conditions, I want to know the way you prefer to be paid so that everything can be prepared before you're coming. I'd like to provide two options for you to choose if you do not mind. Option one, I help you open a new bank account in the Chinese bank named, and that name of that bank is redacted. The payment will be put into your account and you can get the payment from the branch of redacted in your country. Option two, I can prepare the payment in cash. Less than three months later, so around January of 2013, the WUT professor emailed Lieber in an agreement that's titled Academic Cooperative Agreement between Harvard University of the United States and Wuhan University of Technology, Public, People's Republic of China. The stated purpose of the agreement had a five-year effective term and it was to carry out advanced research and development of nanowire-based lithium-ion batteries with high performance for electric vehicles. Now, without consulting any Harvard officials, Lieber signed the agreement on Harvard's behalf, returned the ex executed copies to the WUT professor on or about January of 2013. Lieber did not have the authority to execute this contract on behalf of Harvard. One year later, Lieber continued to work closely with and continued to receive compensation from WUT. About January of 2014, 
Lieber wrote to the WUT professor and another person affiliated with WUT that he would accept a graduate student as a long-term joint PhD student, provided that WUT support all of the graduate student's salary and research costs while working in his lab. In that same communication, Lieber discussed an upcoming visit to WUT in 2014. He made specific demands regarding the payment of his salary. I would like to receive approximately half of salary for the current period in U.S. dollars, with the remainder deposited into the bank account that was set up. And then it's got roughly zero something that I promised to pay for the party following Lin Shu's PhD defense in April can be deduced from either half. But Lieber asked to maintain his bank account, quote, the way it has been for now, and reiterated the earlier request that half of his salary be deposited into his Chinese bank account, the other half be paid to him in cash when he next visited WUT. And he said, I think this is close to what we have done in the past. So this is something that has been ongoing, obviously, when he's writing this letter in 2014. In late 2015, January of 2015, I'm sorry, Lieber outlined his ongoing relationship with WUT, confirming that he intended to visit WUT several times per year, or perhaps slightly more in the next couple years, as we try to build up the nanobio part of the lab. That he would be available for electronic communication on a very regular basis with students, email, telephone, Skype, so that they obtain full input from him as an advisor, and that students visiting from WUT for periods at Harvard would have the same access as a normal Harvard graduate student. Can't imagine how that feels as a Harvard graduate student to know that your professor and the director of your chemistry department is accessible just as much to a student that doesn't pay your university a dime. So around that same time, Harvard administrators learned for the first time that the WUT-Harvard Joint Nano-Key Laboratory and WUT, including the fact that Lieber was the director of the lab. It took him an awful long time to find this out. Harvard officials confronted Lieber about the joint lab and informed him that the improper use of Harvard's name and logo, orchestrated by Lieber, Lieber without Harvard's consent, violated university policy. Lieber falsely told Harvard officials that he was involved in collaborative research with WUT for, quote, mutual scientific interaction, but that WUT was using Harvard's name and logo without his knowledge or consent. So he lied. On February 3rd of 2015, Lieber then emailed the WUT professor and told him that WUT must cease using Harvard's name, stating, Our agreement for research collaboration is between you, Wuhan University of Technology, and me and does not constitute an agreement with Harvard University. And subsequent emails suggest that Lieber took additional steps to try to distance himself, at least publicly, from WUT in the wake of Harvard's discovery of the joint nanolab. These included canceling a trip to WUT in June of 2015 and advising a postdoctoral fellow at Lieber Research Group to continue her work in Lieber's lab rather than starting a position at WUT. So originally he had a postdoctoral student that was going to go to WUT and work. And so then in the uh, there was an email correspondence that went through later um, 
about February 20th of 2015, he told the WUT professor that he'd continue his review of a manuscript written by WUT researchers. In that same email, he also said that he may be in touch with regards to several issues relating to his appointment, salary, and funding. So I think the heat was starting to turn up and Lieber was trying to to figure it out. So at that time, though, what he illustrated by sending that email was that he was still being paid by WUT after January of 2015. In an email dated November 26th of 2015, the professor thanked Lieber for all you've done for our university and me. The professor also told Lieber that WUT had put your salary in your, quote, bank card and will help you change the cash for you when you come to Wuhan. The fact that WUT continued to pay Lieber's salary in late 2015 indicates, at least to this FBI agent, that Lieber did in fact not only continue working for and with WUT throughout 2015, but that payment and salary appears to have continued into 2017. So there's an email dated January 14th. The Wuhan professor sent the following message to Lieber. During our last meeting, you mentioned the tour of Beijing in the end of February or early March. I and all faculties and students in our joint nano lab would like to invite you to visit WUT and our joint nano lab. If your schedule is available, we would like to take this chance to express our everlasting gratitude to your great support for our university and me. Our university has put your salary in your bank card. We'll help you change the cash for you when you come back to Wuhan. Our university will cover your first class flight ticket and accommodation like before. We would like to know your idea with my best regards and thank you very much for your strong support again. By this point, according to their express terms, Lieber's Strategic Science and Thousand Talents Agreement had expired. So as he's receiving these emails in 2017, it would, I mean, you would stand to reason that he signed an additional agreement, which must have happened some point in 2016 or 2017. So since 2009, Lieber's been the principal investigator associated with at least six research grants funded by various Department of Defense entities, including ONR and AFOSR. The total value of these grants exceeds $8 million. As of April of 2018, Lieber was the principal investigator associated with three active Department of Defense grants. On April 24th, Department of Defense investigators interviewed Lieber about his active grants and whether Lieber had appropriately disclosed foreign research collaboration to the Department of Defense. During that interview, Lieber said that he was familiar with China's Thousand Talents plan, but he'd never been asked to participate in the program. Did you hear that? He lied to the Department of Defense. Probably not a good idea. So at that point, he told Department of Defense investigators he wasn't sure how China categorized him. WUT expressly asked Lieber on numerous occasions to participate in the program and sign an agreement with WUT. Lieber did sign a three-year Thousand Talents agreement on in 2012 at least. In the employment contract of the 1,000 talent high-level foreign expert is a 1,000 talent program. Two days after his interview with the Department of Defense, he emailed a research associate affiliated with the Lieber Research Group the following message. 
Can you provide me with the link and info to CAS website where I'm listed as directing that lab at Wuhan? I lost a lot of sleep worrying about all these things last night and want to start taking steps to correct sooner rather than later. I will be careful about what I discuss with Harvard University, and none of this will be shared with government investigators at this time. CAS refers to China Academy of Sciences. And according to Harvard University's website, Lieber was elected to the China Academy of Sciences in December of 2015. This email demonstrates that Lieber withheld information from government investigators about his relationship with Wuhan University of Technology. Lieber was the principal investigator associated with at least three NIH-funded research grants awarded to Harvard University since 2008, and a total of those exceeds $10 million. Two of those grants were being actively funded by NIH as of November of 2018. So, NIH decided to take an interest and inquire as well. In order to respond to NIH's inquiry, Harvard interviewed Lieber about his foreign affiliations, generally, and any connection he might have to WUT in particular. Harvard submitted a detailed written response to NIH on January 10th of 2019, which Lieber caused Harvard to make false and misleading statements about his connection to WUT because he lied to them. So Harvard, he caused Harvard to lie and Harvard wrote that he had no formal association with WUT after 2012, but that EWT continued to falsely exaggerate his involvement with, with the university. This statement was obviously false because all of the documentation shows that he had a collaborative relationship between at least 2012 and 2017 based on the emails going back and forth. That included visiting scientist agreement, and the Thousand Talents Agreement, the Academic Cooperative Agreement between Harvard and WT, and possibly other agreements. Who knows what this guy signed? Um, Harvard tells NIH that Lieber is not and has never been a participant in the Thousand Talents Plan, which that statement was obviously false because Lieber did sign a three-year Thousand Talents Agreement. So the case um, obviously hasn't been litigated yet, but based on the information that this FBI investigator was able to find and provide, it is very obvious that this researcher was scapegoating the American taxpayers for research dollars in addition to accepting large quantities of money from China to duplicate his research. So here in the United States, you work on it, but then you publish it in, in China's name. That is unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. So after all of this, I had I had major questions, you know, based off of learning about these people. And my first question was, well, what is a J-1 visa? How How is, what is that and how does that work? So a J-1 visa is a non-immigrant visa issued to research scholars, professors, and exchange students. So I, I did some research and... So as far as the J-1 visas are concerned, they can last no more than five years plus 30 days. The 30 days is for moving back to your home country. And according to a press conference held by the head of consular affairs in 2017, Edward Ramatowski announced that restrictions would be placed on Chinese nationals applying for visas in the fields of aviation, robotics, and advanced manufacturing. And that got moved from five years down to one year. So I emailed Consular Affairs because 
I was a little bit concerned that we're not paying attention to medical research. I mean, obviously you have Zhao Zong Zhang who stole 21 vials of cancer research. You've got Charles Lieber working on nanobiotechnology. That's a huge issue. Um, So I wrote to the Consular Affairs Office and I said, I know in 2017 they announced there would be restrictions placed on Chinese nationals applying for visas in the fields of aviation, robotics, and advanced manufacturing. Do you anticipate, given the current climate, specifically the arrests of Lieber and Zhang, in the field of medical research and professorships will be limited in the future? Is that something being reviewed or discussed at this time? And the response that I got back was, we'll say canned. Uh, It talks about how they go through extensive vetting and and things of that nature. And um, right now, because of the COVID-19 outbreak, the president signed that there would be nobody coming in. They really kind of just avoided my question, which you can expect that from the government. But I decided to do some additional research. So how many J-1 visas are issued on an annual basis specifically to Chinese nationals? Based on the information I found, according to the Open Doors report, which is conducted by the Institute of International Education, in 2007, there were 50,000 Chinese nationals provided with J-1 visas. Ten years later, in the 2016-2017 school year, there were 128,320. And according to this email that I received from the Department of Consular Affairs, It states in here, the United States welcomes hundreds of thousands of students and scholars from China each year, including over 360,000 in the 2018-2019 school year. So we've moved from 50,000 in 2007 to 11 years later, 360,000. So if that doesn't put a huge blinking red light in anyone else's face that says, How many wars has China been fighting over the course of the last, you know, 11 years? Zero. They have gotten involved in zero conflicts. So how does the Thousand Talents Plan impact the United States? This is a big deal to me. According to the information I found, so I actually found an investigation conducted by one of the permanent subcommittees on investigations the Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. They, in 2019, did a Threat to U.S. Research Enterprise China's Talent Recruitment Plans report. So I have that in my hands right now, and I'm going to share some of the information that I found with you. Specifically, I feel like this Thousand Talents program could possibly be used to exploit our J-1 visa program because apparently... You can just come in with no problem. So let's talk a little bit about China for just a second. So their goal is to be the, not a, the science and technology leader by 2050. And let me tell you, based on the information I'm finding, they're well on their way to doing that. The Chinese government initiated several plans designed to recruit and retain science and technology talent in the 1990s. They mainly issued awards to individuals in China with limited foreign experience. As such, those plans failed to attract the caliber of talent the Chinese government sought in fields deemed critical to strengthening China. So in the early 2000s, their strategy to recruit science and technology talent underwent what they call a paradigm shift. General Secretary Zhao Ziyang 
suggested years earlier China was not losing brain power, but losing, but rather it was storing its talent overseas to tap into later. So at that time, they decided to that shift was two things. One, it was time to attract talent from overseas, pull people from here to there or west to there. And then the second part was a combining of their civilian and their military. So it was the information collected on the civilian side was used to bolster their military side, really. So let's talk about what the Thousand Talents Plan actually is. So it was founded in 2008. It incentivizes individuals, individuals being professors and graduate students, to give the knowledge and research gained here in the United States to China in exchange for salaries, research funding, lab space, other major incentives. The American taxpayer-funded research has extensively contributed to China's rise over the last 20 years. For the CCP, the goal is not advancing scientific collaboration. It's to advance their personal national security interests. When enrolling in this program, members enter into legally binding contracts with Chinese institutions, as we very clearly saw with Dr. Lieber. The contracts incentivize members to lie on U.S. grant applications, set up shadow labs in China, duplicate their U.S. research. Some of these contracts include non-disclosure agreements that require China's permission to terminate the agreement. The Thousand Talents Plan, so we'll call it the TTP, those contracts very explicitly line out what the members are participating in and what they're agreeing to. In 2018, China's government attempted to scrub online references to the plan, including removing the names of the scientists participating in the program, but the program still continue. Just because you don't have it on the internet doesn't mean you're not still doing it. Unfortunately, at this time, given the open nature of research, it would seem that participating in these programs in and of itself is not a crime. There's no comprehensive strategy at this time to address the threat. So let's talk a little bit about the different departments that give this grant funding and how what, what are they doing to prevent this from happening. So let's talk first about the NSF, which is the National Science Foundation. They fund 27% of research at U.S. colleges and universities. As of July of 2019, They prohibit federal employees from participating in foreign recruitment plans, but they do not extend those restrictions to its researchers. They do not vet recipients before awarding funding. They rely on the sponsoring institution to do that, and they have no dedicated staff to ensure compliance. So, in essence, you could come here on a J-1 visa. You could ask for your, you know, $1.5 million, and there's no vetting. There's well, their vetting is based off of the institution. Harvard's doing a great job, in case you can't tell. And they have no dedicated staff to ensure compliance. So coming back later and saying, okay, are you still abiding by the rules? So you could be clean when you come in, but once you receive that grant funding, there's nobody there to say, now are you accepting China dollars to to take your research that we're paying for back over to their country? Nope. So next you have the NIH, which is the National Institute of Health, They invest over $31 billion to medical research through 50,000 grants. They also rely on the institutions to police. They have a compliance division, unlike the NSF. However, 300,000 researchers that they they provide grants with, their oversight visits have gone from 28 visits in 2012 
to three in 2018. So their oversight department is severely lacking. So next, you have the Department of Energy. The Department of Energy is the largest federal sponsor of what they call basic research. So they issue $6.6 billion in grants and support over 25,000 researchers at 300 institutions and national labs. National labs are specifically a network of 17 labs across the United States that encompass large-scale, complex research. The facilities possess unique instruments and facilities, which many are not founded anywhere else in the world. Uh, Currently, they have 35,000 foreign nationals conducting research. The Energy Department funding and research seems to be a very attractive route for the Chinese government, as it has been recently discovered that there are 1,000 talent members working on sensitive research and members holding security clearances. In spite of 30 years of federal regulations prohibiting U.S. government employees from receiving foreign compensation, Energy literally just clarified this year that employees and contractors are prohibited from participating in foreign talent recruitment plans. The FBI's role is to protect the United States from foreign intelligence operations and espionage, but even after collecting information on suspected participants, It took the FBI two years to provide the information to grant-making agencies and as of this recording has yet to establish a strategy to warn universities and governments of potential risks. The U.S. government's ineptitude has allowed China to recruit 7,000 researchers as of 2017, and that's just what we know of. The application process? So first, the applicant's future Chinese employer submits an application to one of the following platforms. There's the National Key Innovations Project platform, which is basically science and technology. There's the Key Disciplines and Key Laboratories platform, which is China's education and university platform. Central Enterprises and state-owned commercial and financial organizations, which is a higher-level talent for state-owned financial institutions. Parks or zones based at high technical industrial development zones platform, which is high level talent to return and create or operate businesses in China business development parks. At this stage, the applicant must provide documents detailing his or her credentials and scientific achievements. In some cases, U.S. based applicants have submitted significant amounts of sensitive information from their institutions to bolster their credentials. For example, Dr. Lang Yu stole materials and design info for the F-22 and JSF-25 jet engines to to make it look like he was smart enough. So he gave sensitive information away just so he could be accepted into the program. Next, the lead organization for the platform evaluates the application, makes a recommendation, followed by the Thousand Talent Special Office and oversees high-level talent introduction small group. They make an application decision, and after selection, Thousand Talent members sign contracts or, quote, letters of intent to work agreements with Chinese institutions. The contracts include provisions that violate U.S. standards of research integrity by placing participants in legally and ethically compromising positions, by contractually obligating them to use the knowledge they've obtained from their foreign employers to successfully fulfill the terms of their contract. The thousand talent plan contracts include intellectual property ownership, provisions, 
and non-disclosure agreements related to research and intellectual property, highlighting the goal is acquisition, not cooperation. Provisions in some of these contracts includes intellectual property, ownership created during the contract, including property in the U.S., at U.S. institutions, with U.S. funding. Every contract reviewed by the FBI so far has included a clause that gave Chinese institutions some rights to any intellectual property created by the TPP members in the United States. Ways to circumvent export controls. For example, a professor at a UN, U.S. university, and this is all in quotations because it's all redacted, specialized in STEM research. He received numerous U.S. government research grants and was also a member of several Chinese talent recruitment plans. This professor also directed a Chinese-based laboratory performing applied military research and development. Instead of traveling to China, the professor sponsored visiting students from the Chinese lab to study under him in the United States. Many of the students in this case were directly affiliated with research and development and China's military modernization efforts. TPP member contracts also stipulate in some cases that contract contents must be kept confidential and can only be disclosed with the consent of the other party. Many contracts note that the member may not terminate the contract without the consent of the Chinese employer. So as a result of these talent programs, China's experienced exponential increase in the number of students, researchers, and scientists returning to China. For example, in 1987, they had only a 5% return rate. In 2007, they had a 30.6% return rate, and in 2018, a 78% return rate. Other cases of note include, in the NSF, first there was Percival Zhang, a biological systems engineering professor at Virginia Tech, founded Cell-Free Bioinnovations Incorporated, which was a private research firm located in Blacksburg, Virginia. They relied exclusively on federal grants, including funds from the NSF, for funding its research activities. Zhang had begun working as a paid researcher for the Tianjin Institute of Industrial Biotechnology, Chinese Academy of Sciences, by at least 2014. In 2015, Zhang submitted fraudulent grant proposals to the NSF. Evidence presented at trial indicated grant funds obtained would be used for research that Zhang had already done in China. Zhang intended to use the grant funds for other CFB projects rather than for the projects for which the funds were requested. In an effort to obstruct the investigation, he submitted falsified timesheets to government investigators. In the second case, there was a guy named Fang Franklin Tao. A, he signed a five-year contract with Fuzhou University in China that designated him as a Chengjiang Scholar des, Distinguished Professor. The contract required him to be a full-time employee of the Chinese university. While he was under contract with that university, he was conducting research at Kansas University funded through two energy contracts and four NSF, NSF contracts. He's alleged to have defrauded the U.S. government by unlawfully receiving federal grant money at the same time that he was employed and paid by a Chinese research university, a fact that he hid from the university and federal agencies. Third, beginning in 2010, while employed at NOAA, Chunzai Wang entered a contractual agreement to work under China's Chengjiang Scholars Program, the Thousand Talents Plan, 
and was also involved in China's 973 program, which mobilizes scientific talents to strengthen basic research in line with national strategic targets of the People's Republic of China. Wang knowingly and willfully received a salary for his services as an employee from the People's Republic of China. Wang was also listed as an investigator on at least one NSF-funded project. So that's the NSF. Next, we have the NIH, who sadly has some disturbing numbers. As of September of 2019, NIH had contacted 70 institutions regarding more than 130 individuals who received or are receiving NIH funding and have been suspected of improper disclosures. So of those, they were given 30 days to return that information. And as of the report that I'm reading right now, they had only received complete responses concerning 51 of the 130 individuals believed to have undisclosed foreign affiliations. And with that being said, these individuals, they're written by like individual Z, individual A, because technically I guess they haven't been charged yet because they haven't gotten a response yet. With that being said, in early 2019, NIH contacted a medical school concerning three principal investigators with potential affiliations with the Thousand Talents program, Chinese universities, and other Chinese government-funded grant programs. The institution conducted a internal review and initially indicated that it did not identify any financial conflicts of interest. The internal review involved phone interviews and written questions and answers with the principal investigators at issue. NIH, however, submitted additional questions concerning one of the principal investigators who told the institution that he or she never worked at Peking University and did not receive any funds from any talent recruitment plans. NIH sent the institution a screenshot of Peking University's website that identified the principal investigator as a, quote, professor since 2012. NIH also sent the institution information indicating that the principal investigator was likely a TTP member. The institution later provided the NIH with an affidavit from the principal investigator stating he or she never held a position at Peking. The principal investigator also told the institution that the university's website must be an oversight or he or she never actually accepted the position. NIH then informed the institution that the principal investigator likely had a potential conflict or he or she maintained an active, unreported National Science Foundation of China grant. The institution's representative wrote back, obviously concerning to us. Well, no shit. Despite these violations of NIH grant policy, the institution allowed the individual to continue as a principal investigator on the grant, and NIH has yet to take any further action. Individual X. In early of 2019, NIH contacted a medical research institution concerning a principal investigator, and that individual was also publicly listed as serving in several positions at Huazong University of Science and Technology. Additionally, NIH alleged that the principal investigator also worked on two active NSFC grants that the individual did not disclose. Subsequently, the institution conducted an internal investigation and stated that it may have failed to completely disclose the affiliation and funding from the National Natural Science Foundation of China and the Chinese Thousand Talents Program and foreign components of the awarded projects and applications and progress reports which designate Individual X as the principal investigator or key personnel. 
After the institution's inquiry into the individual's foreign associations, Huazong University deleted the individual's online resume. The institution, however, asserted that the work did not overlap with past or existing NIH grants. Despite these violations of NIH grant policy, the institution allowed the individual to continue as a principal investigator on the grant, and NIH has yet to take any further action. I'm gonna, I could continue going on. There are many individuals, many participants who are involved in all of this stuff, but I am guessing that you can see a trend. NIH doesn't take any further action on these individuals. And as such, your tax dollars continue to fly straight out the window to China. So what can we or should we do about this? That's the question at the end of this podcast. What should be done? You should be calling and demanding two things from your legislators. Number one, any institution who is found to make materially false statements regarding their researchers loses all funding for all research. You don't have to stop allocating those dollars. Give it to institutions that comply. But under no circumstances should you continue to allow federal taxpayer dollars to be sent to institutions who are literally thumbing their nose at you. And the second demand that you should be making is accountability. So there is one statement that I want to make because in this this report and when an application comes in for a visa on a particularly shall we say sensitive subject or one that China would be interested to get their hands on there's a a program or not program but there's a a process that they go through it's called the visa mantis program which is a security advisory opinion based on sensitive technology transfer concerns which means that I have to go through an additional security clearance process as a visa applicant before I'm approved based off of the type of research or the type of application that I've put in. That data has not been made public since 2005, but at that time, Chinese visa applicants, even at that time, comprised a majority of the Visa Mantis reviews. Specifically, China and Russia comprise 76% of them. When asked to provide Visa Manus files related to visa applicants with connections to China's Thousand Talents Plan, they were unable to provide the data because they don't actually track that data. That is a huge problem that the United States government has people who are applying for visas. They are suspected of being a participant in one of these programs However, the State Department doesn't keep track of the correlation between visa applicants and participants in the Thousand Talents program. Makes it really hard to go back and and receive any data as to how much we are actually being exploited by the Chinese government. So that's the next step. There needs to be a tracking method put in place for the people who are coming here and taking our taxpayer grant dollars. Like, I'm, I'm all for it. You want to come here from Zimbabwe, you want to come here from England, you want to come here from China, I don't care where you come from. I care if you are being paid by that government to come here, work with our tax dollars, and then take the information that you get back to another country to advance them instead of us. The idea of America first should be first and foremost in everyone's mind because we're doing nothing but helping other countries. So, 
With that being said, I hope you are as inspired up about this subject as I am. I know some of the subject matter is a little bit boring, but I am super pumped about the idea of making some change with this podcast. I'm super pumped about the idea of you as a citizen taking responsibility for your politicians representing you and your country. And you should be hanging up right now and getting on the phone. Or not hanging up, but clicking off. Turn me off. Turn me off and go call your congressman. And don't forget to subscribe so that you know the next time that I come on here and rant about the government using our money for stupid shit. I love you guys. Talk to you soon.